right, so for those of you who have not been here before, we are in the book of 1 John, and we finished chapter 1 last week. We will just do a quick review so that you know kind of you're along with us on the ride as we enter into chapter 2 this week. So last week in chapter 1, some of the highlights would be we discovered that the word of life that was discussed at the end of the very first verse was Jesus and that it was talking about him being from the beginning of creation. We took our time to establish that. We talked that Jesus brought the way to have fellowship with God that resulted in eternal life. So as you went through the verses, paired things out, that's what rose to the surface. The apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus's physical resurrection. And then towards the end of chapter one, we got into the discussion that believers have sin, but should avoid sin. So that would be my high level overview of those verses that talked about sin and not sin and lying if you don't all of that. So that would be the highlight from chapter one. So we're going to get into chapter two today. We're going to start with just the first two verses. So we'll read first John chapter two, verses one and two. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. We're going to spend some time in those first two verses. (laughs) So we're going to start with verse 1. How does John begin? He says, my little children. Who is John addressing with that term? Believers. Remember, we talked last week about the fact there's two kinds of people. So he's talking to my little children. It would be those who also claim to be believers like he is. What is the message John has for these believers? He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John does not say you will not sin or cannot sin. It's so that you may not sin. Little words can have a big impact. That's why we look at every detail of every verse and how they come together. So what is provided to those believers who sin? We have an advocate with the Father, so that's who it's important to have the advocate with, and it is Jesus Christ. Who is the anyone referring to when he says, and if anyone sins? He's talking about the believers, okay, because he just addressed that earlier. When believers sin, what do they have? They have an advocate. Who do we need the advocate with? The Father. Let's keep that flow going. And who is the advocate? Jesus Christ the righteous. So in one verse, you see how we ask those questions to come to the conclusion so that we're not having to guess. What is an advocate? Again, that's probably not a word we run around using too often, but what is an advocate? It can have a legal, right? So... In that sense, what does that advocate do for you? It's a person who pleads on your behalf. They're an intercessor for you to somebody else, like a judge, maybe if you were in a courtroom. 
So now in verse two, how is Jesus the advocate for the believer? It says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Hmm. What does it mean? Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What does, again, do you run around using the word propitiation throughout your day? <laughs> right? So it kind of has a Christianese uh, value to it. That's kind of where you would hear it when, we, when we're in that world, Bible studies and so forth, wouldn't you say? So propitiation is a biblical doctrine, and we're going to take some time to talk about it today so that we truly understand what that word means. So first, we're going to uh, begin looking at the word where we find it elsewhere in Scripture to give us some depth and understanding. When you do that, it's often really good if you look in the same book that you're already in. So you're in that same context, same author. So we're going to start with that, and we will find this when we get into 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is what we're going to study when we get there. It says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what that verse highlights for us is because God loved us, he sent Jesus, his son, to be our propitiation. So we now know the motivation, if we can call it that, for why God sent him to be that is because he loved us. So we start with the motivation. How was this propitiation demonstrated? So by demonstrated, like what did it look like? Right? When it happened, what did it look like? What do we mean when we say it was demonstrated? So I think we can find the best description of that in Romans. We're going to go to chapter 3 of Romans, and we're going to do verses 21 through 25. Romans 3 Verse 21 through 25. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So back in Romans 3 verse 21, what has been manifested? The righteousness of God is what was manifested. Verse 22, how is the righteousness of God manifested? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's how it's manifested. This faith in Jesus Christ is for who? All who believe. And in verse 23, what is true for all those who believe? All have sinned. All believers have sinned. I hope that's not a big surprise to any of y'all in here with me. Because all believers have sinned, 
what is true according to that verse. We fall short of the glory of God. When we fall short of the glory of God, what does that mean? We've sinned, but we fall short of the glory of God. It means I can't be in his presence. You have to be perfect in order to be in the presence of God or in the glory of God. So any sin separates you from that. So that's what that means to fall short of the glory. You can't be in his glory because you fall short. You didn't get an A on the test. Whatever way you need to measure that. In verse 24, all believers are what? Being justified as a gift by his grace. What does justified mean? So that goes back to what you said earlier, that it's, it's like a legal term. It has legal meaning. It means acquitted, right? Um, sinner, so acquitted does not mean you're innocent, right? When somebody gets an acquittal, does it mean you were innocent of what you were charged with? Absolutely not. You're still guilty, but you're being acquitted of the consequences of it. And that's an important thing to keep in mind because some people fail to realize that. So it changes their understanding of justification and it can change their understanding of propitiation. And that's why we're going to spend some time unpacking it. So sinners fall short of the glory of God and need to be justified to be in the presence of God. According to that verse, to be justified is what? It's a gift. So you didn't earn it. It's purely a gift. This gift is given how? By his grace, right? His determination, his grace. And how are the believers justified? It says through the redemption, which is in Jesus Christ. It's pretty compact and pretty clear what he's talking about. Verse 25, how was this redemption demonstrated? According to this verse, though, let's be very specific. So whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So When did God display Jesus publicly in his blood? And that was the answer that you just gave. At the cross, absolutely. So when was the blood displayed at the cross? Because don't you find it important that they tied it very specifically to the blood? Let's look at the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and we'll just do verses 32 through 34. And we're looking for the emphasis of when the blood was displayed. Chapter 19, verses 32 through 34. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So this is the gospel description of when God publicly displayed Jesus in his blood. And the 
in Romans, the descript, the, it, Romans describes this as the propitiation in his blood. So we see it displayed for us in the gospel, but back in Romans, it told us that that was description of the propitiation in blood. Why is the blood of Jesus so important? Okay, so we need to have blood for some reason, right? Why was Jesus's blood so important? And I think we can see that if you go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. And again, Hebrews is all about why Jesus is better than any other thing that somebody could look at, better than the angels, better than, you know, better than whatever. He's the ultimate. So by the time he gets to chapter 9 and verse 14, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the important thing about the blood, the blood must be from someone without blemish who does not have any reason for the wrath of God to be poured out on him. And only Jesus met this standard ever. So the wrath that must come from God for sin was poured out on Jesus. Remember, God cannot look beyond our sin and be considered just. God accepted a substitutionary payment of Jesus's death with his blood in place of our death and our blood or our sin. Jesus took God's wrath in our place. This is propitiation. So some people go, hey, my sin's been forgiven. It's been forgotten. It's behind. No. Now, your sin didn't just go away. Your sin had to be dealt with. Your sin needed wrath to be poured out on it. And God had in his justice a need to pour out wrath. And that's what propitiation actually is. The wrath you deserved is what was poured out on Jesus at the cross. And that's a very sobering thought. All sin has to have wrath. And so instead of you getting the wrath, that wrath was poured out on Jesus. That's propitiation. That should really give you some things to ponder today. That's propitiation. Not that just that it's gone and it was forgotten. No, no. It had to have a payment made. Had to have wrath. And Jesus was the one he poured the wrath out on. So now we get to circle back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. This propitiation that we just talked about is for who? He says, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Ooh, again, we need to spend some time on that. Who is the whole world referring to back in 1 John? It could be Jews and Gentiles. That could be one of the answers. Who else? Could be mankind. But here's my question. Is propitiation applied to the whole world? Will there be men who are not saved? Right? We know that. It's nice to go back to scriptures to verify what we're saying. So we're going to do two places in scriptures to verify that. We're going to go to Romans chapter 2, 
We're going to do verses 5 through 8. So Romans chapter 2, 5 through 8. Because, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Two kinds of people in the world two kinds of results at the end of the day. And there is the description of it. There are going to be those who do not accept Christ and who do have the wrath poured out on them that they deserve. Ephesians also gives us this, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Two kinds of people in the world. And what is the common word that we found there? Wrath. Wrath will be poured out. So some who do not have the propitiation will receive the wrath unto themselves. Those who have the propitiation, the wrath has been poured out on Jesus. That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. It's where the wrath ends up. So if this blessed propitiation is not then for the whole world or every man who is ever born, what is John referring to? There's a couple of views on that. I would say John is saying that this propitiation that he's talking about was not only for the apostles. It was not only for the Jews. It was for the world in terms of there was no distinction being made, right? It's not just for the apostles. It's not just for the Jews. This is the only propitiation. Jesus is the only propitiation from God For man, there is no other. So when he says the whole world, that's what he's talking about. There's no other propitiation that's going to come along for anybody else. This alone is the propitiation. But we know it doesn't mean that it's applied to the whole world because we know there are men who don't accept and that will have wrath poured out. There's a ton of scriptures on that. I just narrowed it down to the two. Does that make sense before we go forward? Okay. Back to 1 John then, we're going to do chapter 2, and we're going to do verses 3 through 6. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner he walked. Back to verse 3. How can someone confirm they truly know Jesus Christ? 
It says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Who is the him? That one is Jesus. That, that's a reference to Jesus. In verse two, it ended with, he himself is the propitiation for sins. That's how we know it's Jesus. So you need to go back and you need to figure out what was the last thing being talked about so you know what the pronoun is referring to. John has already established that all men have sinned. So he is not, not now saying believers can find themselves in a state of being with no sin by keeping his commandments. You see how that can be a verse that, and it does get very much twisted in our modern church and in older churches. What is the test about that we come to know him? That's the test. Do we really know Jesus or do we know about Jesus? How do we get to know Jesus according to that verse? If we keep his commandments. Doesn't that seem contradictory? On the one hand, we're talking about propitiation. Now we're back to talking about what seems like works when we're talking about his commandments, right? What commandments do you think are being talked about here in 1 John? What are the commandments that a Christian is supposed to keep? Are we supposed to go back to the law? Any part of the law? Can't be. The New Testament makes that abundantly clear. Paul writes about it all over the place. You do not go back. And yet 1 John says, well, there are some commandments that you really need to be keeping. So let's figure out what those are. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. There's the number one from Jesus's. Again, if you have the red letter Bible, these would be in red letters. From Jesus's mouth, that's the first one. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus summed it up for us right there. Those are the two commandments that he expects us to keep even into this time period. That was not what this scribe or teacher was hoping to find out, was he? He wanted Jesus to go back in their Old Testament law and pick one. But Jesus knew better than to do that. He goes, you know what? I can cover them all with these two. In Luke, we see a similar version, but there's some more details. So Luke chapter 10, 25 through 29. Luke 10, 25 through 29. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. 
do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? After this, we're not going to read all of it, but after this um, interaction between Jesus and this man, Jesus tells the parable that we know as the Good Samaritan, right? But it ends with these two verses. In Luke 10, 36 and 37, it says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. That's the answer to who our neighbor is, the one who shows mercy to him. These verses also give us our answer as to what commandments we should be obeying if we come to know him. These will be the things you are able to do if you come to know Jesus. Back in verse 4 of 1 John, how can we know if someone does not truly know Jesus? He says, the one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments. He is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If someone says, I have come to know him, this is someone who says they have come to know Jesus. But their behavior is then what, according to this verse? Doesn't keep the commandments. What is the truth about that person? He is a liar, and the truth's not in him. I know it seems circular, but think about that. For somebody who does not know Jesus, they do not really know his commandments. They do not advocate to keep his commandments. They do not teach others to keep his commandments. They disregard in all facets of their life his commandments. These men do not know him. They are lying and they say they know him. They do not have truth in them. Jesus is not their savior and the Holy Spirit does not indwell in them. Just keep that in mind. We're not to be the ones to run around and do this, right? We're just to know if we're having a conversation or somebody tells us from the pulpit or wherever else that they know Jesus and yet their actions would give you pause, it's for you to be careful. That's the point. Because you're not going to beat somebody over the head and convince them to change anyway, right? So it can't be for that purpose. It's solely so you can have discernment on who you're listening to and what they say to you. In verse 5, what comparison does John then give? He says, but whoever keeps his word, what is true about this person? In him, the love has truly been perfected. What has been perfected? The love of God. So if the love of God has been perfected in us, what do we know? By this, we know that we are in him. Notice the focus is about we, me judging me, not me judging you. That's how I know I have Jesus if I do these things. So do we know his commandments? 
Do we advocate to keep his commandments? Do we teach others to keep his commandments? Do we regard it in all facets of our lives with his commandments? These men then do know him. Do we have the truth in us? The Holy Spirit then dwells in us. You see the difference? The difference is always me looking out going, I need to be careful when someone says they know him, but they're by and commandments. Remember, we're back to those two. We're not going back to the Old Testament. I don't want anybody to get a misrepresentation here. Those two commandments. If somebody says they know him, but they don't then keep to those commandments, it would give us pause. But then we're supposed to look at ourselves according to 1 John and say, if you do know him, you will keep them, right? So it's it's an internal, you know that for yourself. And if you look around, you might be able to say, wow, that person sure did demonstrate what I understand to be the commandments. Maybe they do know Jesus. Maybe I can work in discipleship with them. Maybe I can do this, right? But it's about you knowing first where you stand with your relationship with Jesus. So in verse six, how can others know that this is true about us? He says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Who is the standard? Jesus, it's always Jesus. And that's so none of us can ever achieve it, right? We're always going to have a standard that we're trying to meet. We're not supposed to be like John. We're not supposed to be like Paul in that way, right? We can, they did some things that were great to emulate, but they didn't lift themselves up as to be the highest standard. They both always raised the high standard to be Jesus. So don't compare yourselves to one another. Compare yourself to Jesus. That's the goal. What is the goal if we say we abide in him? to walk in the same manner as he walked. What would it mean to walk in the same manner that he walked? What do we mean when we say that? To maybe emulate the life that Jesus lived on earth, right? During his humanity, this would be the true goal for the believer. And how would we know how Jesus walked? Well, we'd read the gospel, Right? We'd read the Gospels, we'd get an idea of how Jesus walked. We'd look at the New Testament books from the writers looking back and saying, oh, did you know Jesus did that? Did you know he did this? Did you know he said that? Those would be the ways in which you could make that comparison. Are you walking in the way that Jesus walked? When you're persecuted, do you keep your mouth shut? Do you turn to God to be your defender? Right? Did Jesus do that? Yep. Ah, but did Jesus also speak up truth? Right? Whether there was a threat to his life or not, did he always speak truth? Well, that would be another example of emulating what Jesus did. Those are the standards that you use. Always the Jesus standards. It seems so far in this study that there have been a lot of topics that John is unveiling in what I would call an indirect manner. And it has taken us effort to understand exactly what John might be talking about. Would you agree with that? It's kind of like, why did he word it that way? Concepts like knowing God, declaring one does not have sin, light versus darkness, keeping versus not keeping commandments. So why do you think, or what do you think John is actually addressing in this letter? 
These concepts were important for John to highlight because they were direct refutations to a specific false teaching that was prevalent in the early church. It's called Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is from the ancient Greek, and it means having knowledge. That's what it was based on, having knowledge. And I put this challenge to you. Feel free to just do all kinds of research on all the different forms that it has taken from the very early time. It didn't just stay there. It grew. It advanced. It took on different meanings during the Middle Ages. It takes on different meanings now. But the core of what it means is for somebody to declare that just having knowledge is the way you get to heaven. All right? It's about what you know. It's all up here. That's at the core. I did a lot of reading of different commentaries, just different teachings on Gnosticism, and it can go off in all kinds of places. There's a lot out there. So what I've narrowed down to, this is what I'm going to give you today, would be the highlights of the tenets of Gnosticism that John seems to be specifically dealing with in his letter. Okay? So... There's a lot of research, and you can feel free to do your own. Here are the basic highlights of the tenets of Gnosticism. And next week, I'll have a slide that will highlight these for you. They'll be in the notes if you look at the notes online. But sometimes it's nice to have that visual. Right now, I just want you to walk through them with me as we come across them in places where it's already been addressed and what we've studied so far in chapter one and the first part of chapter two, we're going to see why that's the tenet that John is dealing with and why he chooses to word the things that he's saying the way he's wording it. That's how you get the clue of what he's doing. So the first thing is a person's knowledge defined through mystical experiences broadens perception of God and that Leaning in, learning is superior when compared to a person's character. Right, so when those two things are compared, what you know is a lot more important than what you do. And they separate them. Knowledge is superior. Eh, what you do doesn't matter all that much. And there's a lot of reasons they go there. But that's the, that's the high level of that first tenet. Number two... Attaining special knowledge, often obtained through experiential encounters, is reserved for a few special individuals. It's not really for everyone. Right? So we set up a hierarchy. And things that are not literal in scriptures could only be interpreted with this special knowledge that is only for a few. Okay, that's one of the other tenets of Gnosticism and any of the other teachings that you could tuck under that description. Number three, God as supreme deity cannot have anything to do with evil. So this God did not create the physical world or matter. There is another creator of the world. So because This deity has to be so perfect and he couldn't have had anything to do with sin. And we obviously see sin around. God didn't create the world that we see. 
some other God did. That had to be their conclusion. Tenet four. Physical matter and spirit cannot coexist because matter is where evil resides. You can see where that's leaning, right? So for the deity, this is what that would mean. So the deity did not become human, right? Because they can't coexist. So they would say the deity did not become human. He only took on the form. He wasn't really He just took on the form. Like for other people's benefit, it could look like he was. Jesus came to bring man back to the light of God. So this has been repackaged often as a term that we hear in our more modern world as enlightenment. We've been enlightened. Physical resurrection is not possible. And some would refer to that as the fifth tenet of Gnosticism. What does this teaching imply for man? So that's what this teaching overall implies for the deity. What does it imply for man? Our physical being and our spiritual being are not interconnected. The spiritual self cannot sin because the physical self does not impact the spiritual self. We're separate. Right? Whatever happens to my physical body has zero impact on what's going on in my spiritual. But they don't have anything to do. Somebody did a lobotomy and they just cut everything apart. Okay? Some can give in. So the result of that is that some gave in to their physical desires because they reasoned it had nothing to do with their spiritual being. And what do you think that leads to? We call it licentiousness. I can do whatever I want in my flesh because it has no impact long-term. I can do whatever. Others abused the physical body so that they could go beyond it and reach the spiritual part of themselves through, say, itself abasement. So they go from, I won't pleasure the body. So what I'll do is I'll destroy it. I'll create pain in it. I'll make it something that I just don't even want to respond. I'm going to get beyond the limitations of this body. Because when I can get beyond what this body can do, then I can attain to the spiritual part of me and I can deal with it. I can grow it at whatever connection they want to make. Isn't it interesting what man does with these different concepts? One concept, some men go this way with it. Other men go this way with it. Interesting. With this understanding, this is high level, ladies. There's a whole lot more out there. This is kind of the high level. With this understanding, it becomes clear that John is laying out direct refutations to the basic tenets of this belief system. To the first point, let's go back now. John refutes in chapter two, verse three. He says, the only way to demonstrate true knowledge of God is in keeping commandments. Knowledge is not superior to character. True knowledge of God cannot exist without character. And that is demonstrated through action. So do you see why? If this is the very specific teaching that John's coming up against, that's becoming prevalent in the early church, that's why he's going to talk about sin. That's why he's going to talk about you got to do the commandments. Not that the commandments save you, but he's dealing with this false teaching that they have nothing to do with each other. 
John saying, oh no, they do have something to do with each other. If you know him, your character should demonstrate that. They're not divorced of each other. They're very much in line. To point two, and when I say point two, I'm referring back to the points that I gave when I put them in order, okay? So point two was attaining special knowledge, um, often obtained through uh, experiential encounters. So to point two, John refutes back in chapter one, verse three. So that you too may have fellowship with us. John communicates that everyone has access to fellowship with God. Remember, we talked about that last week when we did that verse. That's why he's making that a point. Not just the apostles had access to fellowship with God. All believers have access to the fellowship with God. There is no special hierarchy. That's the point that John is refuting when he deals with that. Also in chapter two, verse two, he says, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John informs the readers, this is not restricted to an exclusive group of believers, but all believers. Now you understand maybe a little more why John was using the term whole world. If you understand what he's refuting in the false teaching. They were separating out and making certain people be special. They'd had a special dream or a certain experience. Those people have a special relationship. And John's coming along and saying, uh, 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 uh. this thing we're talking about, it's not just for the apostles. It's not just for the Jews. It's for the whole world. It's all equal. It's the same thing. John's refuting this teaching right here. To point three, which was God as a supreme deity cannot have anything to do with evil. Point three, John had clarified this back in chapter one, verse one. Why do you think he said what was from the beginning? God alone is the creator, all things through Jesus. One God, and that God did creation from the very beginning with Jesus. He is not separate from his creation. He's dealing with this false teaching that God couldn't be the deity that created the creation. To point four, which was that physical matter and spirit cannot coexist because matter is evil. So that's point four. To point four, John proves that there were eyewitnesses to the physical resurrection, to the physical life that Jesus lived on the earth, including himself. He puts himself as the eyewitness for that reason. In chapter one, verse two, he says, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and manifested to us. Now, do you see why he chose the words that he did? He's going up against those who would say never happened. It wasn't real. So he uses those words and he repeats and he says, we saw it, we heard it, we touched it. It was manifested to us multiple times. It was manifested. It is to be in the face of these teachers who are coming along and saying, ah, not possible. He's like, not only is it possible, we're witnesses. We're here to testify. And he's putting it in this letter so that he can go out to the early church. So the other believers can say, you know what? I know somebody who said from the very beginning, they saw it themselves. I think I'm going to believe them. 
I'm going to ignore this thing that you're trying to come along with and teach me. John says that the life or deity, right? Because deity is what the false teachers are going to use. He's used the term life that was with the father was the same life or deity that was manifested in Jesus's humanity. And there are many eyewitnesses. You see how he's tying them together? Deity and creation. Jesus was at the beginning of the de- with the deity in creation. And that same deity was experienced in humanity in Jesus. And we're here to testify to it. You see why he's having to use the words that he's using? Why it's so important? That's his selection of words. Also, to debunk point four, that Jesus came to bring man back to the light of God, John declares in chapter one through five, "Uh uh-uh, God is the light. That's what Jesus came to talk about, was God being the light and how we go there, not how we bring it to us. You see the difference? He went, the false teachers are like, oh, we're going to bring that light of God here in us versus no, 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 no. Jesus focused us on God being the light and making a bridge to that light. It's the opposite journey. It's to, not from. There are multiple ways that point four was interpreted and applied, applied by the false teachers. One of these ways was to claim Since the spirit was saved and perfected by God, then no sin long, no sin no longer existed in them. They claimed they had no sin. John deals with that in chapter one, verse eight, when he says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And in verse 10, he said, and if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Do you see why the way it's worded is so important to know what John's dealing with? These scriptures in first John are often taken to mean all kinds of things they don't mean. This is where Christians can go off and they're different. Well, see, you can't have sin because it says we can be perfected while we're here in this because John says we can do it. And if we have sin, then we're a liar. No, John's contending with a very specific false teaching about the concept of sin. It had existed then and it exists today. In chapter two, verse four, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. John explains anyone, sorry, saying they don't need to keep God's commandments and therefore not avoid sin is a liar, meaning they don't have fellowship, right? Or have knowledge of God. John flat out says, if someone claimed not to have sin, they lie and they do not know God. Does that make sense why some of those things were worded so strongly? He's dealing with a very specific false teaching. As we continue through this letter of John, we will make note when John is declaring that there is a clear contrast in what the false teachers were advocating. There are many powerful concepts that John sets forth in the first lesson of 1 John in chapter 2. 
I would suggest that you take some time and do some thorough study on your own, maybe this week, go over it again. Now that you see what was being taught by the Gnostics and maybe spend some more time and realize just, I mean, you can go read, there's all kinds of stuff that's out there if you want. These are, the, these are just the highlights. Once you understand what that false teaching has done and that John is in the early church trying to contend with it from the very beginning, now go back and read the parts of 1 John that we've already been through and see if you can't see what John is saying much more clearly. It, it doesn't seem as archaic. It doesn't seem as vague when you understand what he's up against. And I chose to do this after we'd spent some time doing chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, because I wanted you guys to experience what it's like to try to make sense when the verses seem to be circular and you're like, okay, well, they're true. The verses were true. And as we parsed them out, they were true. And we figured it out. We went to other areas to make sure we were on the right track. But as you get a little further through, you're like, hmm, I wonder what else John may have been talking about. And so that's why I wait to bring this up now instead of giving it to you at the very beginning. I want you guys to be able to do that for yourselves as you're walking through. Like I can find the truth, but I wonder what's, what else might be out there. And I think that's important because the goal of this study is for encouragement on you all having critical thinking so you can study the Bible. Never forget that's the focus. I want you to be able to study it. I want you to be able to walk through with other people. I want you to be able to answer why you say you believe what you believe. That, isn't that important? Isn't that what we're all supposed to be able to do to give a defense for why you believe what you believe? That's the goal. And you get that through, first of all, the Holy Spirit. You cannot do this if you don't have the Holy Spirit. And that was John's point. These people talk the talk, but based on what they were saying and the results of what they were saying, it was evident they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't truly know God. And we had the question come up before about people who say they're spiritual. It's the same thing in our, in our world today. There are people who claim they know deity, they know God, but they're not talking about the same God you and I are talking about. And that's why definition of terms is always important. What do you mean when you say, I don't know, sovereign? Or what do you mean when you say this? Because if you guys haven't talked about the definition of the, the words that are going on, you're just two ships passing in the night. And the point is to be able to answer what the gospel is about for yourself and for you to know and you to have the confidence. That's what you're supposed to be doing as you become confident in what you know about the word. I think, aren't you braver to engage? with others? Aren't you braver to bring the gospel to a stranger when you have no idea what they might share back or say back to you? Aren't you braver to disciple young Christians? If you know when they start to answer questions, you might be able to help guide them to where they can find the answers. That's what we're here for, ladies. That's what we're here for. That's what we've been left to do. Know your word so that you feel brave when the opportunity opens itself to share the gospel with strangers and to disciple other believers. That's what we're here for.